Uh, on the back table, I don't know if Kennedy, uh, you were able to hand these out, but this there's a, a quiz. So I know not everyone's been able to be here every uh, night, but I thought we could uh, begin our evening with a little bit of a pop quiz. It's this particular uh, paper with five questions on it, uh, reviewing uh, some of the things we've been talking about the last three classes. It shouldn't be uh, too difficult. Um, but if you can just, you don't even have to put your name on there, it's just for fun, but just do it. See how you can do it. Yeah, do it right now. We'll give you a minute to do it. Yeah, it looks like this. Five questions. Circle the Bible's view of the Bible. That's the first, first question. If you didn't get it, there might be an extra one on the back table. All right, all right. Um, how about the first question? Anybody want to try to tell us the Bible's view of the Bible? Which do you think it's A, B, C, D, or E? Please say E. E, yes, or else we have to go back. What is the last book in the Old Testament? That wasn't one from the, from the first five classes. That's actually from today, and it's a little bit of a trick question. You're pretty sure you're going to do it? Yeah? What do you think? Oh, close. That's the last book of the New Testament. That's good, though. What do you think is the last book of the Old Testament? Second Kings. Close. Yeah, some people think Malachi, or we'll learn today, Chronicles, the book of Chronicles. Yeah, that's right. What is, we'll talk about it, what is the kingdom of God? What's a simple definition for the kingdom of God? God ruling his people. That's a simple definition for sure. God's people and God's place experiencing God's presence and God's blessing. True or false, Marcion was a great church father who was known for his love of the Old Testament. False. Marcion was a heretic who hated the Old Testament. And then what is one reason understanding the Old Testament is important if you are going to understand the new? Okay, so it sets up the story so we can even know why we need a Savior. Does anybody else have a reason why the Old Testament's important for understanding the New? It explains who the Messiah is going to be, tells us who to look for. Yes, right. So if you didn't have the Old Testament, you'd only have, you'd be missing a lot of the New Testament. It gives you the logistics. There's a lot of things in the New Testament you just wouldn't understand without uh, reading the Old Testament. Jesus uh, loved the Old Testament, and should, uh, so should we. And that's what we're going to be studying uh, a little bit this evening. It's great to see you. It's good to be together. Uh, thanks for coming out. And uh, as you know, we're working our way through uh, the Bible week after week very slowly. Uh, in fact, so slowly. Uh, this is our fourth week, and we haven't really gotten to the Bible <laughs> yet. Uh, we've just done a little bit of introduction. But I don't mind going slowly because this is a big book. Uh, my Bible's almost 2,000 pages long, and it's an old book, and it's an important book, and so we want to make sure that we can understand it as best as we can, because we know uh, the Bible is profitable. It's got a promise attached to it, actually. Uh, Paul tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable 
for uh, teaching us, for correcting us, for rebuking us, and for training us in righteousness. And so this book is supposed to be uh, profitable for us. It, it's the primary way we hear from God right now, and he gave it that we might live in a way that honors him. So he, he gave this book to us so that we can know him, hear from him, and be changed by him. And yet, uh, it doesn't always feel profitable to us at first, all the time. Uh, sometimes we open it up and uh, we start reading, and there are parts that are, di are difficult for us. And uh, there are parts that maybe don't always even feel relevant to us. Like, for example, maybe we're sitting down to learn. We're, we're going to have our devotions. We're excited. We go to a church that teaches the Bible. And we open up to Numbers 1, and we read, Of the people of Judah, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names from 27 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Judah were 74,000. And we're like, huh, I wonder what I'm supposed to do with that. How does that benefit me? Or maybe we think, okay, numbers is, uh, is a little challenging, so we turn, we just flip, and we're in Ezekiel 5. And we read, and you, O son of man, take a sharp sword. Use it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will come out into all the houses of Israel. And you're like, wow, that is a strange way to cut somebody's hair. And I am not sure how in the world I'm supposed to apply that. Was Paul reading the same Bible that I'm reading? And then maybe we uh, come to church or we listen to someone online and they're teaching the Bible and we hear them explaining it. And we're like, shoo, it seems like they really can understand it. It seems like they really know what's going on. And sometimes we can start to wonder, can I really understand it like that? Like, is this a closed book to me? Is there something wrong with me? And those are uh, real questions and important questions for us to ask because understanding the Bible is key to benefiting from the Bible. Paul says it's profitable, but all that stuff that Paul says the Bible does is based on you understanding it first. And so if you can't understand it, you're kind of uh, in trouble. You're not going to learn from the Bible, be rebuked by the Bible, be corrected by the Bible, or be trained by the Bible if you aren't able to understand it accurately at first, or accurately first. In fact, it's actually even a little worse than that. There's a sense in which the Bible is dangerous if we don't understand it accurately because we are claiming that God said something he didn't say. So this puts authority to it. Uh, when we were in Africa, I often thought this, man, I wish people would just say it's their opinion or an idea rather than say God says when they're actually saying something that God totally didn't say because if 
God didn't say it, and you're claiming God did say it, then you can see where people start really getting confused. And so we need to understand and make sure that we're understanding what the Bible says accurately. But again, the question is, uh, can we? Can we actually do that? And of course, the answer is yes, with some qualifications. Like, first of all, we won't always understand everything completely for lots of different reasons. One, each of us has our own limits, right? And the Bible is talking about big subjects. And it is uh, just a pretty unusual book. It has its own challenges in that it's not just one book we're talking about. We're talking about 66 different books. And it's written by God ultimately, but uh, God is using human authors, and he's not just using one author either, but a lot, a lot of them. And just like with any author, there are some that are easier to understand, and there are others that are more difficult. So even for me in the New Testament, which uh, isn't always as hard as the old, there are writers of the New Testament that I feel like I click with, and other writers of the New Testament that I'm like, huh, this is going to take me a long time. James, whenever I get a chance to preach and I don't have much time to, to prepare, I always go to James because James feels like a, just feels like a buddy. I feel like I understand what James is, the way he thinks. John, I'm still working on. He feels like he's an old, older guy who talks in circles. And I think, oh, I think he just said that. And then we're gone and then we're back. It's written in different styles, the Bible, and some of us are better at learning from different styles than others. Uh, and, of course, the fact that God stooped down to write the Bible in a way that people could understand in their time makes some challenges for us understanding in our time because we're living in a different time. So for God to write it in a way they could understand is almost automatically going to make it a little more difficult for us to understand because we're living a couple thousand years later. So, of course, we're not going to always completely understand everything, and sometimes we do learn and we do understand, and then later we uh, forget what we know. I always like reading through uh, old notes where I've studied something in the past. I'm like, wow, I knew that at one point. <laughs> I totally didn't know that anymore, but I knew it then. So we have to have the right expectations, uh, of course, as we come to reading the Bible, but we can understand the Bible. We can understand it enough to be saved. We can understand it enough to know God. And we can understand it enough to live a life that honors him. This book was written to be understood. Even on Sunday, we, we saw that Jesus says it's like a light. And he didn't give this light to be put under a bed. He gave it to shine. The word of God is a light. So this is a book that God wants us to be able to understand. We can understand it. It's a book that we're going to have to think about to understand. And we're going to have to wrestle with to understand. And we're going to have to ponder to understand. But we can understand it. We won't always understand everything, and it's got parts that are going to be more difficult for us, but we shouldn't become hopeless because we can learn difficult things. And that's something I want to emphasize because sometimes people come to learning thinking that they can't learn, like they don't have the capacity for learning difficult things. But most of the people that say that have actually learned challenging things already. It just requires a process. And that process often begins with going back to the basics. So many of you are good at math. I'm not good at math. Um, but I'm sure you know that if you want to do complicated math, there are steps that you have to take to get there. You almost have to go in order. Learn this, then learn this, 
then learn this. And if you miss something on the way, you're going to have a problem later. Uh, maybe you found you wanted to learn something difficult at a point in your life, but you wanted to learn it quickly, and so you're just sort of going on YouTube, and you look at the first video to explain it, and then you're like, no, 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 I want to go to the 10th video, and you just fast forward. And what happens if you try to fast forward often is that all of a sudden, you go from very basic stuff to very complex stuff, and you're like, I could never learn that. But if you're patient, if you're willing to uh, learn the basics first, and you just kind of follow the process, in time, those difficult, complicated things can be easier to understand. And that's true with the Old Testament and, and the Bible as well. And even more true, really, because we're not learning this on our, on our own. We have the Holy Spirit. We actually have the author who dwells in us, and he can help us understand, and this author wants us to understand. But he generally doesn't do that in a magical way. He does that as we're thinking, as we're working at understanding. This is one of the, the privileges of being a Christian and being a human. We get to think big thoughts, and we get to work at thinking big thoughts. And so God gives us understanding as we think about what he says. Paul actually tells, this is sort of a classic verse, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.7, he says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So you see it there, think, because God's going to give you understanding, but you have to think. And so it's going to require us doing a little thinking, and that's why we've gone back and we've begun looking at some of the basics for understanding what we're reading. Like, first of all, what is this book? That was the first question, and we said it's God's word, but through humans. And so we keep saying it's a miracle in that we're reading a book that's really different than any other book out there because it is a book written by people, and yet somehow God is causing them to say just exactly what he wants them to say. And he's even stooping down to use contemporary forms of communicating that they were familiar with as he's doing that. And so this is a neat thing about the Bible because God could have spoken in a heavenly language and just said, you figure it out. But he didn't. And he could have used heavenly concepts and ideas that we're totally unfamiliar with, but often he didn't. He understood the culture in which he was communicating, and he was willing to stoop down and use things from that culture to deliver his message so that people could understand. So one big example for that, as we're going to read the Old Testament, is covenant, the idea of covenant. Maybe you've heard the word covenant before. That's going to be a big word as we read the Old Testament. We're going to talk about covenants, but during the days Israel was in Egypt, at that time, there was a type of covenant, like a relationship between countries that was sort of like a contract, where a powerful country would enter into a relationship with a country that wasn't as powerful, and they would, ha they would call that, they would make a covenant with one another. And that covenant actually had a certain form, and actually historians have uh, discern that covenants had different forms in different eras. And so if you look at the era in which uh, the book of Ex Exodus takes place, you learn about the covenants that were typical between countries in those days. And then you look at the covenant that God makes with Israel, and you find God uses almost that exact same form. 
It was, uh, you, get, you pick up a contract nowadays, you can tell it's a contract because it follows a certain form. And the covenant God made with Israel has different content, certainly, but it follows the basic form of covenants that were made between powerful countries and less powerful countries in those days with some important differences. But it was recognizable. Or later, we're going to be reading the book of Proverbs, and we find this whole section of Proverbs in the Bible. And we're familiar with Proverbs, of course, even now. But in Solomon's day, this was like a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, the, there were these wise men all over the world who were uh, writing Proverbs. And so, for example, right around the same time as Solomon, there are all these Egyptian Proverbs made by Egyptian wise men. And so God is using a form of communication that people were familiar with to communicate truth. And he does that with uh, these uh, styles of writing and with these things like covenants. And actually, even in some of the stories in the Bible, you will find God using things people knew in that day that had a particular relevance to people in that day, like Moses and his staff in Exodus you find this staff coming up over and over again, and you wonder why. And you do some research, and you learn that Pharaoh, one of the things that represented his authority, was a staff. And that's why you almost always see Pharaohs pictured with a staff. And so this is communicating something, especially when Moses' staff ate all those snakes, which also was something that was, the, the snake was a symbol that represented Pharaoh. He had like this crown with a snake on it. And sometimes God uh, does that with the stories themselves. People get worked up about this, but uh, at, once in a while you'll find people attacking the Bible because there's a story in the Bible that's similar to a story in the surrounding culture. So sometimes that's because the Bible is telling the real story and the stories that were told later were like myths or distortions of the biblical story, like with the flood. There's all kinds of flood stories, and the Bible's like the real story, and these other stories are, are myths that they were telling their own version of it. But sometimes what's happening is that God is picking up uh, some themes from a story that was familiar in that culture and actually making it real so that he could communicate something powerful to the people of that day. And so you'll even see that in the Moses story. There were some themes that were pretty familiar in what happened to Moses, being drawn out of the water, going to speak to the leader. There are some themes that are, you'll find in earlier Egyptian stories. And God is, it's like God is using something that that culture was familiar with, he's actually using a real event to communicate something very powerfully, as usually in the Egyptian stories, it was the Pharaoh who was in Moses' place. And so God is saying Moses is the real hero. And often what happens is you'll look at the stories in the culture, and you'll look at the story in the Bible, and you'll see some vague similarities, but more than that, you'll see these huge differences. But it's true, there's some correlation, and often what's happening is that God's just using the story people are familiar with, making it actually happen, 
and tweaking it to emphasize a message that he wants to communicate. And so this is an amazing book we're reading. That's, that's the point. It's a human book, and it's written by God, and that makes it a unique book. The fact that it comes from God means that we can trust it, trust it and it has absolute authority. And the fact that it's written by humans means it's written in a way that we can understand and that we can start to understand by looking at how we understand any communication we get from anyone. So that was first. What is this book? It's God's word. And then second, we talked about why we should study the Old Testament. And of course, just saying that it is God's word is a good start. I should want to read it. But when we start, it can feel harder than the New Testament. And so we might just want to kind of stay in the New Testament. But we said the problem with that, of course, is that you won't understand the new without understanding the old. And to cement that in our minds, we looked at Jesus' attitude to the Old Testament and saw that he trusted it, he preached it, he, he knows everything, and so we're going to listen to him. This is Jesus' Bible, and we want it to be our Bible too. And then last week, we just started skimming through our Old Testament and asking, what is the Old Testament and what is it basically about? And if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, you should probably go back and listen to it. But we started at the ground level, and we said that understanding your Old Testament starts with understanding what kind of book it is, which is almost too obvious. But if you go to your bookshelf and you pick up a comic book, a cookbook, a fictional book, and a devotional book, obviously you know the way you read those four different books is going to be different. If you read a cookbook like a fictional book, you're going to probably be disappointed and find it very boring. And even your approach to those books, you're probably not going to um, sit down on your couch with a fictional, fictional book and like start underlining and writing things in a little journal. Um, the way we read those books is different because they're different kinds of books. And so we have to ask, what kind of book is the Old Testament? And we said that's a, lot, a little hard to answer because it's a lot of different books and a lot of different kinds of writing. But there's a reason we call it a Bible, not Bibles. We call it a Bible singular because all those books and all those stories come together to tell one big story. And so uh, fundamentally, the Bible is a story. That means if I'm reading a book like Judges, I'm reading all kinds of individual stories, and yet those stories combine to tell one story in the book of Judges, and that story in the book of Judges fits into a bigger story the whole Old Testament is telling. It's, in a way, it's kind of like a museum, like the Holocaust Museum or something. So you go to a museum, and they're going to have all kinds of different artifacts in it. But obviously, those artifacts were chosen and brought together for a certain reason. And certain museums are designed to teach you a certain story, to give you a certain perspective. And the Bible has all kinds of different things in it, but those things were chosen and brought together to lead you somewhere in particular. First of all, to show you the greatness of God. Second of all, to get you ready for Jesus. And third of all, to teach you about the hope of the kingdom of God. And that's the big picture on the front of the puzzle box. Um, God's people in God's place experiencing God's presence and God's blessing. So that's the start, step number one. What kind of book is this? What is it about? Step number two, next. How is this book organized? You remember last week we talked about the Old Testament as not just being like a puzzle, but also being like a disorganized closet for a lot of people. And so these are two pictures. The Old Testament is like a puzzle you have to put together. The Old Testament is like a closet, and for a lot of people, it's like a disorganized closet. And uh, there's an author who uses this illustration, and she says when she was in university, she was known for having a disorganized closet. They even put a picture of her closet up in her dorm, and she would just throw everything in there. 
And that obviously made her closet not very useful. They would have chapels at like 7.30 a.m. and she liked to sleep in. And so she would go to her closet and she couldn't find anything to wear. She would always wear the thing that was on top because it was too hard to find the stuff that was underneath. And that's the way we can be with the Old Testament. There's all these details in there, but we can't get at them because we don't know how they're organized. And so we're going to try again to work on organizing this closet a little bit. Or maybe another way to think about it would be like a grocery store. So we're pretty familiar with grocery stores, some of us, I hope all of us. But imagine if you weren't. Imagine if you went into a grocery store and you had never been in a grocery store before. A grocery store is huge. And there are like most grocery stores in America, at least, there are thousands of items. And there's like such a huge variety. And so you can imagine never being in a grocery store and somebody gives you this long list and you didn't know how a grocery store worked and you entered, it, it would be overwhelming. It could literally like take you a day to find everything. But somehow it doesn't. And why? First of all, because grocery stores are organized usually a certain way. And second of all, because you've been trained without even really knowing it to understand how that organization works. When you go into a grocery store, a new grocery store, it's probably a little uh, unfamiliar to you, but you figure it out pretty quickly. And if you don't believe me, go to a different culture and try to figure out what's going on in their stores and how it works. That can be almost like impossible. Even in your own culture, just a little tweaked. We went to Tokyo Central grocery store the other day and it was challenging for me because I wasn't familiar with almost anything. We were just trying to find kimchi and that took me forever. And so if you're going to understand the Old Testament, it helps to understand how did they organize it? Like, how is this grocery store organized? And we can begin with the books themselves. So if you open up uh, your Old Testament, you just turn not even, I guess, almost the first page. There's usually a, a table of contents. And if you look at the table of contents, you'll see, of course, that uh, the first thing you see is that there is an Old Testament and a New Testament. And testament is kind of a weird word for most of us. It comes from a Latin word, testamentum, which was a translation of a Greek word, and that Greek word was covenant. So really, this is old and new covenants. And we're going to see why that's significant as we study. But there's an old and new covenant. And if you look closer and you start counting, you see there's a list of 39 books in your Old Testament. Um, in, a, in the Hebrew Bible, there would be 22 because they put some of these books together, like Chronicles is one book, Kings is one book, Samuel is one book. But there's a list of 39 books. And that list of books is important because obviously there were a lot of different books written before Jesus. And not all of them are included here, clearly. Not even all the books written in Israel are included here. And so this list of books is what we would say are the books of the Old Testament scripture. And a word that people use for this list is the word canon. Not canon with uh, two N's, but canon with one N. And that word canon is like, means literally read, but it's just a word that they use to describe a group, group of books that are authoritative for faith and for life. In other words, as an example, Moses, he spoke for God, but Moses also wrote down what God wanted him to say. And when Moses wrote down the words of God, he was, he was, his writing was inspired by God, 
and was authoritative as a result. So it wasn't just an ordinary book. And so what Moses wrote down was canon and recognized as being from God and as part of our Old Testament scripture. And even as Moses was writing, Moses was making clear, this is not an ordinary book. This is not something you can mess with. So listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. He says, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. In other words, what I'm saying here cannot be tampered with. This is not ordinary. And therefore, it's part of the canon. It has this authority that needs to be recognized. And later in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 18, God tells Moses that he's going to raise up prophets from among them who are going to speak for God. And he gives them a way to know that they actually were speaking for God. And he says, people are going to need to listen to these prophets like they're listening to God. And at the most basic level, the books that they wrote are the books that were recognized as having this kind of authority. They were books that were written by authoritative representatives of God speaking on behalf of God. And as these books were written, they were recognized as that. They were kind of written one by one. But people recognized these are not ordinary books, and they started collecting copies of them, and they would keep them in the temple. And as you read the Old Testament, what you see is that there came to be this idea of a collection of authoritative books coming together. For example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 12, and this is in the days of a king named Josiah. So this is pretty far into Israelite history, right before the exile. And Josiah is trying to get God's people back in line. He's kind of like the king who is driving the bus after it already went off the cliff. And he's trying to like steer it back, but it's already on its way down. There's no way they're getting that thing back on the road. And yet he's trying as best as he can. And he finds God's law here and he's trying to do what God's law says. And this is what 2 Chronicles 35, 12 says, and they set aside the burnt offerings that they might distribute them according to the groupings of the, the father's houses of the lay people as it is written in the book of Moses. And that's talking about the Pentateuch. So Josiah clearly recognized, they all recognized, these books are canon. <laughs> they, they have absolute authority. We need to do what these books say. And as you study history, you see that outside the Bible and in other writings, Jewish people by the days of Jesus had a group of books that they considered as having this unique God-giving authority over their lives. So by 150 BC, we have someone who, uh, his name is Ben Sirach, and he's writing about his grandfather, who he says, devoted himself to the reading of the law and the prophets and the other books of our ancestors. And so there are these groups of books that they saw needed to be studied, and needed to be taught. And then, of course, Jesus in the book of Luke. The end of the book of Luke, he talks about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And uh, everybody that he was talking to understood why that was significant. These books are God's word. And outside the Bible, there's a, J a Jewish historian named Josephus who's writing in the first century, and he talks about these books, this canon, and he divides them in a very similar way that Jesus does into three groups. He talks about the books of Moses, the books of the prophets, and then another book 
that he calls the writings. And if you ever want to do some study, there are some really good books that are written on the history of how and when these 39 books in our Old Testament were recognized as being part of the canon. I just finished one called Scribes and Scripture. But even though I just finished it, there are a lot of details and dates, and I'm not an expert. And so I don't want to get lost or confuse you in describing how all of this came together. But I think what's important is understanding that these books are canon as they are written. They are authoritative. And so it's not like there was a group of people who decided that these books were scripture and made a list, but instead these books were the books that were recognized as being written by prophets and representatives of God and were thus scripture. And as history went on, people started writing down this list so that it could be clear. And I, I'm just trying to emphasize that we didn't make the canon, the church. We didn't decide what books go in the Bible, really. We recognize the canon. Someone has said it's more like the Star Wars canon. So you know the Star Wars movies, maybe, if you talked about that as having a canon. How is that formed? The canon is decided by the author. And so when the movie comes out, it's canon. Why? Because it is. You don't say, I don't like it, so it's not canon. It is. You don't have a choice. There's no voting process. It's just recognition. It's based on who wrote it, who said it, the authority of the author demonstrates it. And maybe 100 years from now, people will write the list down so that other people can know these are the movies made by whoever and part of the Star Wars canon. But they're not deciding that. They're just recognizing that. And when we talk about the list of books that make up the Old Testament, it's a little like that. It already is canon if it's written by God. And historically, the church just recognized what already was. And the primary criteria of canon was whether that book was inspired. And when it came to recognizing that about these Old Testament books, the early church just basically used a list that uh, of books the Jews already recognized that way. And these are the 39 books that we have in the, our table of contents in our Bibles. Though there are a few other books that we call the Apocrypha. And so they're in Catholic Bibles. And I don't know if you know this, Catholics call them deuterocanonical books. We call them um, apocrypha, though uh, calling them apocrypha is just a tiny bit confusing because there are two sets of apocryphal books that are different. There is a New Testament apocrypha that are just false books pretending to be written by apostles like the uh, Gospel of Thomas or something, and it's really clearly nonsense. But the Old Testament Apocrypha are books that were written after Malachi, but they weren't really recognized by the church or by the Jews as being on the same level as these inspired books. But many Christians did read them and find encouragement from them. And uh, if you want more resources on that, we can talk and I can see if I can find you some resources that will be helpful. Um, in general, um, Christians would say those deuterocanonical books were uh, books that might be helpful for edification, like maybe C.S. Lewis or something, but not for the establishment of doctrine, and were not inspired by God and authoritative in that way. But we're going to be talking about these 39 books because these are the books that, <clears throat> for thousands of years, God's people have recognized as scriptures. 
though they haven't always organized the books the same way. So now we're getting back to that idea of a grocery store. But a grocery store is organized a certain way, and so is our Old Testament. If we look at our Bibles, we see that it goes Genesis to Malachi. Uh, and basically, uh, in our English Bibles, we divide the Old Testament up into four sections. So we would normally say there's law, there is a history, there is poetry, and then there are the prophets. And we're familiar with that, and that seems normal. And yet, of course, that's not inspired, that way of organizing the Bible. <coughs> obviously, because the books were written one by one. And so they were grouped together like this later. And apparently, the first time that we find this way of organizing these books this way is in a Greek translation of the Bible around 300 AD. And they had a reason they did Genesis to Malachi. Probably part of that reason was they wanted to end with Malachi because that talks about the great prophet who comes before the day of the Lord. And that prophet, of course, we know is John the Baptist. And so Malachi was the last book written, and it's not bad to have it as the last book in our Old Testament. But they were just trying to do what we're trying to do, help you organize your Old Testament so you got the point. And they saw certain books clearly went together, like the books of Moses. And then other books they organized according to the times they were written about or the style of writing, and then they organize them by authorship. And we're going to see more how that can be helpful. But the Jews and Jesus had a different way of thinking about the organization of the Old Testament. So Jesus's Bible wouldn't have ended if he read different. They were, it was in scrolls when he read it. But they had a different way of organizing the Old Testament. And they divided the Old Testament scrolls up into three groups. First, they would have the Torah, and we think of Torah as law, but the word Torah really just means instruction. And those are the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then they had something that they called Nevim, the prophets, and that is a Joshua, Judges, Samuel. Um, it was just one book. And uh, Kings was like that too. Thank you, brother. And those are uh, the former prophets. And then there are the latter prophets, the big three. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And interestingly, interestingly, there were these three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you had the 12 prophets that we call the minor prophets, um, but that's just because of their length, not their importance. But there are 12 of them, just like there were uh, 12 tribes. And then finally, there's the Ketuvim, which is the writings. And these are all different kinds of books. At first, it kind of feels like that drawer in your kitchen where you just put everything. But you have Ruth. There was a, there, there's a reason for this. But there's Ruth. There's Psalms. There's Job. There's Proverbs. There's Ecclesiastes. There's Song of Songs, Lamentations, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah was one book, Chronicles. And so you might hear this sometimes. It's called the Tanakh. Um, Tanakh is like an acronym. So Torah starts with T. The word for prophets is Nevim, that starts with an N. And then Ketavim, that word begins with a K or like a hard C sound. So you have this T, this N, this K, and they just stick an A vowel between the consonants and you get the Tanakh. And those are the three divisions, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And that is how Jesus organized the Old Testament or summarized the Old Testament 
in Luke 24, 44. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so we have the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And Jesus is referring to these three groups, only he calls the writings the Psalms, which is kind of funny. Why does he call it the Psalms and not just the writings? And there are all kinds of different theories. But it's probably because the Psalms was the first book in that section. So one of the ways that uh, ancient literature was uh, named was by the first word or the first piece of literature. So the book of Genesis in Hebrew, the name is Bereshit because that's the very first word in the book. Or the book of Exodus is called Names, and that's just the first word. Leviticus, I think, is, uh, it's, the title is And He Called, which is the first words of Levit Leviticus. And it doesn't tell you much about its content. It's just naming the book after the first word. And so maybe one of the reasons Jesus describes this third section as the Psalms is because that's the first book in that section. And it's kind of beautiful, actually. If you look at the beginning of each of those three sections, Genesis is the first book in the Torah, and then Joshua is the first book in the Prophets, and Psalms is the first book in the Writings. And if you look at the beginning of each of those sections, in the first chapter of each of those sections is this emphasis on the uniqueness of the Word of God. So Genesis 1, 3 through 5 talks about, it's all about God said, God spoke, and this happened. Joshua 1, 8 and 9 is like, don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. And Psalm 1 is all about blessed is the man who meditates on the word of God. So in Jesus' Bible, he used this threefold division. And Genesis would have been the first book, and Chronicles would have been the last. And uh, one illustration that Jesus thought of the Old Testament as arranged in that order is actually in Luke 11, 49 to 51. So Jesus in Luke 11 is talking about these prophets in the Old Testament, these martyrs, and he starts with Abel, and he says, from the blood of Abel, and then he goes on to the blood of Zechariah. And it's like Abel is the first prophet who dies as a martyr, and Zechariah is the last, and his death is recorded in 2 Chronicles 24. So it seems like in Jesus's Bible, the first book was Genesis and the last book was Chronicles which was an ancient way of ordering the Old Testament. So they find um, evidence of this from all the way back to uh, 2nd century B.C. And some people think all the way back to Ezra and Nehemiah. And knowing that can be helpful. That's why I went through all that work. Um, in terms of making your way through the grocery store of the Old Testament, if you think of Genesis as the beginning and Chronicles as the ending, because usually beginnings and endings are important. Like if you write a paper, you're going to try to do something in the introduction, and you're going to try to do something in the conclusion. And if we think of these books as the beginning and the ending, and we think of them that way, because that's where they're placed, and then second, because when you look at them, there's actually a lot of similarities. So Genesis and Chronicles are virtually, one man says, the only books in the Hebrew Bible saturated with gene genealogical lists. And so we get a little bored with genealogies, but genealogies, we're going to see as we look at Genesis and Chronicles, are actually exciting because they're God's way of saying he has a plan and he is moving history toward a goal. So Genesis begins with Adam, and it moves 
to a promise about a descendant of Judah ruling over all the nations from the promised land. Then Chronicles, you know who, Chronic, what, who Chronicles begins with? It begins with Adam and moves to David, the descendant of Judah, and gives hope that someone from his line will be the promised ruler who rules over the entire world. Abraham is called from Babylon to go to the promised land at the beginning of Genesis, and in Chronicles, the Israelites are sent back from Babylon to the promised land to begin again at the end. And there's more similarities. <clears throat> but if you think of Genesis as a beginning, what does that tell you about this story we're reading and how the Bible works? Uh, first of all, if you think of Genesis as the beginning, it's, we're very happy that Genesis is the beginning and not Exodus. Because what Genesis does is it puts the story of the Bible on a big stage, and it helps us understand this is about what God's doing for the world. And so if the Bible began in Exodus, we would wonder what? What about us? <laughs> but what Genesis tells us is that everything you're going to read about Israel has something to do with the way God is fixing the problems of this world. And I think Genesis gives us a picture of the whole thing, how it's all going to work out. But we'll get to that when we read Genesis. But then Chronicles, if you think about that as the end, it focuses more specifically on the Israelite nation. It looks at David, Jerusalem, and the temple, and it describes the rise and fall of Israel and how it was taken into captivity, and it ends kind of sad. It actually ends pretty sad. It's a significant ending if, if you know the beginning because you're expecting great things from Israel as you begin this story. And then you know where Israel ends up almost at the end of Chronicles? pretty much the same place as Adam. So if you think of um, Adam being there in the garden, he is uh, kicked out of the garden and he's looking back in, like, how do I get back in? And so then you think of God saying, okay, Israel, I'm going to pick you up. And it's like, I'm going to place you in the garden. And he describes the promised land using all those kinds of great, lang great language that's very garden-like and wonderful. I'm going to place you in the garden. And then what happens at the, in, in Chronicles? Israel gets kicked out of the garden just like Adam, gets sent into exile just like Adam. And you're wondering, okay, what, what's next? That's, that's the conclusion or almost the conclusion because technically the conclusion of Chronicles is Cyrus sending the exiles back to Jerusalem. And you're like, what next? It's almost like a movie where there's a, uh, <coughs> a hero that you think is dead and he's like lying on the ground for a long time and you don't see any breath. But finally, just when you think that guy's gone, you see one finger move. That's kind of the end of Chronicles. And you're wondering, okay, there's hope, but how is this story gonna end? And that's part of why we actually have the prophets. <laughs> so you see how this works in the way the Old Testament story is told. You get the story and then you get the explanation. So you have, um, Joshua through kings that we call the prophets, and they're explaining how God kept his promise, and they tell the story of how and why Israel was sent into exile. And then you have Isaiah through Malachi, and some of these are prophets before the exile, so they're warning them, and some of them are prophets during the exile, and so they're explaining, and then some of them are prophets after the exile, and they're giving hope that it's not done. And so Jeremiah is like, the exile's not the end. There's something great coming, and Ezekiel's like, the exile's not the end. There's something great coming, and then Isaiah shows how it's going to happen. And so in the Torah, the first five books, you get this promise about how God's going to fix the world through Israel. 
that in the prophets you have God explaining how the promise that he made worked out, why it worked out that way. And in the uh, writing prophets, like Isaiah through Malachi, it's almost like what God's doing is putting a pause on the movie that you're watching and explaining. Somebody's like a, a narrator explaining, okay, this is what you just saw, and this is what it means, and this is how God's going to fix it. And then in the writings, we get practical theology. This is how people should respond to what God's done and said. And these books are examples and explanations of how we should live in light of who God is and what God's doing and this great plan that he has. And that's why a lot of the writings are more practical, actually. And they're designed that way. So you read Daniel, and part of why Daniel was written was to give an example you, you, to God's people in exile. How do, you, how do you survive in exile? Look at Daniel. And so you could look at Daniel and say, dare to be a Daniel, to a certain extent. But the prophets are a little different. You can't really read the prophets and say, dare to be a David, in the same way. And yet his story is still going to be beneficial, but you have to get to the application a little differently because it's a different kind of book that you're reading. Daniel was written in many ways to be practical like that so that you could uh, almost just follow Daniel's example. But the way the prophets are written is, is it's doing something different. And so it's beneficial, but you have to get to that application a little differently. And one way we, we know that is because of where we find it in our Bibles. That's one of my least favorite things to do, drink in front of people. But we look at the way it's organized, and there are these uh, three big sections. There's a beginning, and there's an ending, and there are these different kinds of books designed to do different kinds of things. And if we look at the books themselves now a little more closely, that becomes even a little more clear so now we're starting to <clears throat> drill in a little. We've opened up our Bible, we understand what it is, and then we've seen this list of books and we understand that they're organized and they're organized a certain way. Now we look at the individual books themselves and one of the first questions we have to ask, again, is what kind of books are they? It's like we have to go back now. It's like we're in a museum and we know, okay, this is the Holocaust Museum or whatever, so I'm expecting certain kinds of artifacts to be in here. But now we're looking at the individual pieces in that museum, and we're trying to understand them and how they tell the story, how they fit into telling the story. Whew, this is, everybody's working for me tonight. Thank you, sweetie. And that begins with understanding the kind of specific books that we're reading. So again, big picture, it's God telling a story. He's preaching a message, but he uses different ways, specifically a different literary forms to communicate that story. So even like in a message that I'm preaching, one message, I might use a poem, I might use a illustration, I might tell a joke. I don't tend to do that, but some pastors are better at it than me, at all three of those things. <clears throat> but those are different forms. And when you're reading your Bible, it's important to understand a little about those different literary forms if you're going to understand exactly what God's communicating. Because you read different kinds of literary forms different ways, obviously. And actually understanding what kind of literary form you're reading impacts the way you read it. 
So I heard an illustration one time about a professor, I think it was at Harvard, but he taught a class on English and linguistics. And then right after that class, he taught a uh, class on English and religious poetry of the 17th century. And in the first class, on the board, he wrote a list of authors that they needed to read. Um, Jacobs, Rosenbaum, Levin, Thorne, Hayes, O-Man, question mark, because he didn't know how to spell the name. It was just this list of authors' last names, and that was their homework assignment. But then he left that list of names on the board, and he told the next class it was a religious poem, and he asked them to interpret it. And they came up with all kinds of ideas. They said Jacob was Jacob in the Bible, Rosenbaum, they said that was the German word for rose tree. Levin was Levin in the Bible. Thorn was a reference to the crown of thorns. And Oman was either Oman exclamation point or a different way of saying amen, which is a way to end a religious poem. And the point is, what you think you're reading shapes the way you read it. How we read a piece of literature depends on what kind of literature it is. And we know that. This sounds deep, but it's not. This is just part of how God designed us as humans. <clears throat> we pick this up in our culture almost without thinking about it. So we almost automatically know that every piece of literature we pick up to read belongs to a different category. And we recognize that usually by the particular form of the literature we're reading. And we adjust to it. So, dear Joshua, blank, 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 sincerely, we know that's a letter. I'm reading a letter. A letter has a form. Two cartons of milk, four loaves of bread, cereal, eggs. Written right after each other like that is a shopping list. A shopping list has a form. That was so funny. LOL, talk soon. A text message has a form that's different. You read a text that says, Dear Joshua, dot, 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 and then ends sincerely, that would be strange. Comic books have a certain form. We know this. And recognizing the nature of what you're reading and understanding that form helps you understand it. And that's true of books as a whole. I don't expect the same thing of a book of poetry as I would a work of fiction or a work of a, a biography. Even a newspaper. I'm reading a newspaper. I don't expect the same thing of an opinion piece as I do a regular article, except that nowadays it doesn't work like that. Everything's opinion. But it's not supposed to work like that. A newspaper is supposed to have different kinds of writing in it. And again, we know this. Even just when it comes to communicating, we're doing this all the time. But an example. So let's say I have a friend named Otto, who I give him a ride, and he feels compelled to tell me how to drive, to park, to navigate shortcuts. And one day he asked me, he says, what would you do if I ever stopped telling you how to dry, drive? And I reply, I would give you $1,000. <laughs> so how Otto applies that statement depends entirely on his understanding of genre. Looking up words like thousand or dollars in a dictionary does not help. He has to understand what kind of statement I'm making. The sentence, I would give you $1,000, is couched within a larger genre, which is the conversation. Whatever label's given to that statement, it's given in jest as part of the give and take banner and discussion of topics between friends that sometimes characterizes car rides, short walks, or conversations. That's obviously a quote. 
And one of the first steps to understanding the books of the Old Testament is understanding what is its literary type? What kind of book am I reading? And there are basically three types of books in the Old Testament. So first there is story, there's narrative, and that's a text that makes its point by telling a story. <clears throat> then there are poems, and poems are uh, picturesque and emotional ways of writing with rules. And actually, uh, Hebrew poetry is very different than, has different rules than our poetry. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't rhyme. It, it's almost all using parallel statements. And then there's prophetic discourse, I think you could call that, or just discourse, which is a, almost like a combination of poetry and preaching to logically communicate a sequence of ideas. And in the Old Testament, what's the most common literary type? Narrative. So narr it goes narrative, poetry, discourse, but narrative. And then, of course, you have to go a little deeper as you read the individual book because there are different kinds of writing even within those larger literary types. And you could call those genres. And there are a number of different genres in the Old Testament. So there's law. You're reading narrative. The Pentateuch is mostly narrative. <clears throat> With Actually, the Pentateuch's really cool, the first five books, because it's got mostly narrative, but it's got like five poems. And those five, it's almost like a musical. So if you imagine the Pentateuch like a, a musical, those five poems are in the part of the musical where somebody comes on stage and starts singing and everybody pays attention because something weird's going on. And those five poems really tell, I think it's five, tell the story of the, of the that make the main point of the Pentateuch, which is about the Messiah. <clears throat> but in the Pentateuch, you don't just have poems, you also have law. So uh, that's a particular genre. And actually, law in those days is a little different than law in our days because it was a whole different kinds of society. And they thought about, they didn't really have jails and things like that. So they thought about law very differently than, than we do. And we need to understand that genre if we're going to understand what's going on. <clears throat> There's something called apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic is prophecy, but it's a special kind of prophecy. It's a little more extreme. So prophets will be like, thus says the Lord, and apocalyptic is usually visions or symbols. There's like a little mystery to it. Daniel is, uh, Daniel 7 to 12 has a lot of apocalyptic writing in it. Prophecy is usually about now and later. Apocalyptic is all about the later. It's like things are too bad. The only hope is for God <coughs> to finish things and establish a solution that's going to last forever. Uh, but then there's lament, so you're in the book of Psalms and, and sometimes in the prophets as well. But this is a poetic prayer of grief and sadness, and it usually has a, a pretty specific form as well. It follows a particular pattern. You have songs of praise, and then proverbs. Proverbs are, um, they're just short sayings, but they're... Uh, Really wise men in the Bible, it's really wise men looking at the law of God, looking at life, looking at the way the world works, and trying to help you understand how to make sense of it all. And um, we have to understand the genre of Proverbs if we're going to benefit from it. One of the biggest mistakes that people often make when they read Proverbs is they read it like it's law. So a good example of this is train up a child in the way he should go when he's old, or it's prophecy. <clears throat> train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And people are like, 
I just know. I trained up my child. That's a promise. When he's old, he's going to become a Christian. And it's like, oh, that would be so nice. But, but that's a proverb. That's a, it's a different genre. It's not a promise. It's not, a, not prophecy. It's a guy, a wise, godly man looking at the way the world normally works, the way the world was designed to work, and giving us a summary statement that is often true. And that's actually, it's so cool in the Bible, actually, because you have these three uh, books that are part of the wisdom literature, maybe four, but you have uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and um, Job, and you almost have to read them all together because they're, they're not arguing with each other, but they're, they're just thinking together about the world. It's like they're almost having a conversation. And so Proverbs is kind of, this is not my illustration, but it's a good illustration. Proverbs is kind of like the really smart young lady professor who just knows everything. And she's just like, this is the way it is. Uh, you do what's right. Life goes well. What's the problem? And Ecclesiastes is more like the middle-aged guy with a little beanie on his head, the French guy. And he's like, but it does not work that way. You know, it's a, uh, I've seen the, wicked, uh, the righteous man die and the wicked man prosper. And uh, so he's looking at the world. She's looking at the world. This is how God designed the world to work and the way it often works. And Ecclesiastes is looking at the world and saying, but sin broke it. And so it doesn't always work that way. And then Job is like the old guy, and he's like, I've been through it all. And let me tell you what, you need a wisdom higher than just human wisdom. God's operating at a different level if we're going to understand all these things. But that's how wisdom, that's how wisdom literature works. And then you also have non-proverbial wisdom in the Bible, and that's a little different, and that's a little harder because it's not always quite as, quite as clear. It's uh, some of Jesus's parables, in a sense, are kind. It's like almost like wisdom literature parables in that he's saying something that he's forcing you. If you're going to get it, you're going to have to really work for it. <laughs> it's possible. Um, Proverbs are kind of taking wisdom and putting them on the bottom shelf, and. Um, Non-proverbial wisdom, it's kind of just putting it a little higher where you're going to have to really want it if you're going to understand it. And most of these we're pretty familiar with to a certain extent, but you know it takes a little work, especially for us with narrative and poetry, because that's just not how we normally communicate now. Um, in Africa, sometimes you would find people communicated this way more. Somebody's telling you a story, and you're like, <clears throat> I know he's trying to make a point. Because like you ask a question, and he's like, I was born on a small hill in the DRC, and you're like, I was just asking you how to get to the restaurant, but he's, they'll, they'll often tell a long story that you're supposed to be able to listen to and get, they're going to teach you a lesson from that story. So that's a, a genre. It's actually always happening in our world, like every time you watch a kid's movie, every time you watch a TV show, they're telling a story, it feels like, to to move you, manipulate you, to make a point. But we're just not usually um, paying attention. And that's part of why it's kind of dangerous, because they're uh, moving you to think a certain way and you don't even realize it. But the Bible uses a lot of stories and a lot of poetry. And we're not always trained in it, which is sometimes what makes reading the Old Testament a little difficult for us. But we can grow in this, especially uh, when it comes to the Bible, because we're reading a message from God. We need to grow in this. And um, how do we do that? Well, 
we, uh, let me give you some suggestions. I'll just end with a couple suggestions, in particular for when you're reading stories. And we'll do this together more in the weeks ahead. But when you're reading stories, and this makes up most of the Old Testament, there are, oh, wow, it's 8.06. I've done so well with time until today. That's because I couldn't find my watch when I came in here. Um, Oh, well, why don't I send these to you on email or something? Maybe Will can help me, help me with that. I'll try to be good about time. That, that's, uh, so you just have to have fun trying to read stories, figuring it out. A lot of the Bible's stories have a good, a good, good time. Um, okay, well, I'm sure we'll have another day. Um, any thoughts or questions? Yeah, here you go. I think your analogy of the Star Wars is wrong. Okay. <laughs> it's only true if the screenwriter You have to talk to Abner Chow, who's the president of Masters University, because it's actually his illustration. You must be much more into Star Wars than I am. What I, th what I think the analogy is saying is that I don't get to say, um, what's that? I can't, uh, I don't get to say Star Trek is Star Wars. Um, I, yeah, okay, you just wanted to. Cool. <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. There are a lot of the skills, I think, that will carry over, for sure. If you get good at reading Old Testament narrative, you'll um, be good at reading New Testament narrative. I think a lot of New Testament narrative, those guys were, grew up studying Old Testament narrative. And so uh, it's not very different, though I'm sure if you press into it, you're going to find scholars who will say they did pick up um, some things from the culture of their day in terms of how to tell a, tell a story when it comes to the Gospels. Um, but maybe we'll get to that when we get to the, to the Gospels. Thanks, uh, Evan. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yes. They had the Old Testament. Um, so they did have the Old Testament, but we call that the silent years. Um, the 400 silent years in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And we'll talk about what happened in those silent years, because a lot happened, actually. If you end the Old Testament, and you begin the new, the world is very different from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the new. A lot of things took place during those 400 years. So for example, the end of the Old Testament, you don't have Pharisees, really. And all of a sudden, the beginning of the new, there are these Pharisees and Sadducees all over. 
and you have to wonder where did they come from. And so understanding a little bit of the history of that time will help you understand, um, actually even the language that they spoke changed. So by the, the New Testament era, they were mostly speaking Aramaic and uh, not Hebrew and then Greek um, as well because uh, of a guy named Alexander the Great who tried to make the whole world um, Greek. But um, yeah, so those, those are called the silent years. And that's why when John the Baptist showed up uh, claiming to be who he was claiming to be and Jesus said the things he was saying, it was a really big moment. Like, wow, God, God started speaking again. Um, and, and when Jesus started doing it, all those things that were the fulfillment, fulfillment of the Old Testament, that's why people got so excited because they're like, man, we've been waiting for this for a long time. That would be fun, fun to talk more about. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's a great question. So a couple things. One encouragement would be you, first of all, it is hard, but you learn how to do hard things and ha- all the time, and God, he almost built into being a human that, that we figure out how to communicate with others, you know? Like, we're constantly having to do this work of learning how to communicate, and so we have a lot of the almost wired into us, the sort of abilities that are, we need to be able to understand something difficult, uh, a form of communication that's difficult. So that's one. Two, um, yeah, as you read the Old Testament, um, you're going to, one way you get better at reading is by reading. And so certainly you don't want to say, oh, it's too hard, I'm going to stop. You should say the opposite. It's too hard, I need to be humble, and I need to ask God for help. And God loves to help those who ask for help. So I'm going to ask God for help. And then as I do it, um, again, keep your you know, we want to work hard and and go deep, but at the same time, when I'm having my devotions often, I'm just asking, Lord, please show me something great about who you are. Show me something great about how salvation works. Show me something important about my own sinfulness and how humans work, uh, what is wrong with us, and and what's the solution. And if you ask those kinds of questions as you're reading, almost every Old Testament story is going to have, you might not understand all the details of it, But if you ask those kinds of questions, almost every Old Testament story is going to show you something about who God is, going to show you something about why we need salvation and how he's accomplishing salvation, and he's going to show you something about how messed up people are. And there's a lot lot of great stuff to work with there. Um, And then uh, maybe another would be um, try to uh, listen to a way, listen to guys who are good at it. There's a guy named Dale Ralph Davis. Uh, this is actually the book I was going to show you, The Word Became Fresh. This is one of the most helpful books I've seen on how to understand Old Testament narrative texts, and it's just fun. It's like that Dominion and Dynasty book I pointed out. It's fun for me, but you might, it, it might feel harder, but this book is just like so clear and, 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 and just so helpful. Um, but you listen to a guy like this, and you're like, okay, what's he... He's just noticing. That's the thing. I, even this Abner Chow, who I was speaking about earlier, he just no, a lot of what they're doing is just noticing. 
They're like noticing what's there. And, and so some of it's just continually working at observing. And then part of the, so something I, I think we all need to realize when, when we're studying the Old Testament, like be humble, there is a right answer. But there's also this process of getting to the right answer that's okay. Like, which is, we don't know the right answer right when we open it up. You know, like, if, if I open up Kings and I read some story, I don't know the right answer the first moment I read that story all the time. <clears throat> but that's okay. That's part of the process of thinking and of meditating and, and uh, wondering. That's part of the glory of being a human. Like, we don't have to just eat grass and go to the bathroom. And we can actually think about God and think about things that are hard to think about that are matter. And so you don't have to, there is a right answer. We work at it. We want the right answer. But part of the joy is this process of being like, I have no idea why that is in there. Um, I want to think about it. What am I missing? I know it's in there for a reason. I know God wants to say something. And we don't have to be stressed out about that. And then sometimes we're just like, okay, I'm not going to get that one for a while. <laughs> I just, maybe someday the Lord will give me some clarity. And um, it makes for, for some good conversations too. And they, uh, There's a guy who talks about um, the Bible as Jewish meditation literature, but meditation literature. So it's made, some of these stories are made to carry with you and sort of meditate on and if you're doing that you're 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 on the right track thanks guys um there's a really helpful uh so i don't love everything that these guys do but and i'm sure they wouldn't love everything i do either but there's something called um the bible project and on the bible project they have how to read they have videos on how to read um the old testament and uh, many of those videos are, are really helpful. Um, you might not come back to this class because you'd be like, I got, I got the good stuff. <laughs> but in a more interesting way. But, th but uh, that's helpful. That's some good stuff. All right. Thank you, guys. I, I appreciate you. I appreciate these questions. That was wonderful. That was really. And the pushback on the Star Wars canon. Talk to, talk to Hugo about that.